Let's talk about revival. We haven't talked about revival for at least seven days. And that's a long time. <laughs> so we want to talk about revival. You know what would be better than talking about revival? Would be to experience revival. But I'm a believer that if you hang around something long enough, you may just find yourself just falling right into it. <laughs> or moving right into it. So we are not going to lose sight of this theme because it is the emphasis of the church and the Great Commission. And it's not, it's not accomplished apart from revival. But we want to share this morning, I'll explain this, um, the reason for using this topic. It'll be self-explanatory as we proceed. But we're going to talk this morning about revival and why it tarries. So the word tarry means to wait. Something that tarries is something that waits. So the, thing, the, the idea is revival and why it tarries. It seems to wait. It seems to be waiting. It seems as if it is not arriving. It's somehow delayed or it's why is it not coming? Why is it not being manifested now? So revival and why it tarries. I want to go to... Um, Nehemiah chapter 6, this Old Testament book written by Nehemiah. It may be that Nehemiah was born in Babylon. At, uh, we, we come, we're introduced to Nehemiah by his own writings. And he is, he is uh, serving as a wine bearer or a cup bearer. And he, uh, he is serving royalty in Persia. And he's serving under the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. It comes to his knowledge that in the city of Jerusalem, the walls are fallen down. The walls, there are great breaches and holes in the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And people are able to move into the city that have no right to be there. And there are all kinds of elements in the city that shouldn't be there. It's a his his heart is grieved by what is happening to the city of Jerusalem, and so he petitions uh, King Artaxerxes of Persia, and he requests permission that he might go to the city himself and repair those breaches in the walls of the city. And the king graciously grants him permission. The king gives him letters of authority. He uh, basically assigns him as a governor over that region and uh, commissions him to go to the city of Jerusalem and to repair the walls of the city, repair all those breaches. And the king says, I want you to have these letters of authorization. If anyone asks you on what basis you are doing this work, you are doing it under my authorization, and you have access to lumber and to timber from the, from the king's force. And so everything you need I will provide to you, and you have my authorization and so Nehemiah went, of course, with many with him, and he went as a governor of the, of the region to repair the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, before I read this, I want to just, um, maybe we could just kind of share a little bit here in terms of things that happen in our lives that tend to distract or impede our progress or hinder us in some way. And if we've ever had if we've ever had occasion to be uh, distracted or to be hindered? And have we ever felt in our lives that our progress 
was insufficient. There was something that was holding us back. Uh, have we ever find, found ourselves becoming involved in something else? Have we ever found ourselves becoming involved in something that we really shouldn't have become involved in at all? The Lord had called us. He had commissioned us. He had said, I want you to do a certain thing or I want you to pursue this course of study or I want you to come before me and seek my face. I want you to come before me so that I can and soften your heart, break up the fallow ground of your heart so that you can hear me as I speak to you. I want to, you to engage yourself. I want you to pursue my presence. Have we ever found ourselves hindered or allowing something to come along that tends to distract us? In fact, do we live a life of distraction? Could we say that the majority of our week is spent in practicing the presence of Jesus and talking with him and listening to his voice. And could we say that, that there's a significant amount of our time that is devoted to the fellowship of the Lord, fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or is that something that we just try to do on Sunday mornings? Is it something that we just try to do once in a while? Or do we listen to some gospel music from time to time and think that that's worship? Or, you know, are, are, are we distracted and do we live a life of distraction if we wanted to really be honest about it? When was the last time that we really sensed the presence of the Lord in a personal way? See, what we're doing right now here this morning in this room, which is a wonderful privilege and we love it, but this is not, this is not, the ultimate calling of our lives. The truth is that as we are live in close uh, fellowship and communion with the Lord in our daily walk, then it radically transforms this kind of meeting. This kind of meeting is radically transformed by spontaneity and even gifts of the Holy Spirit and special graces the music sounds different. The words of the songs come through with power. The teaching is much, much better than it normally is, even though perhaps the same words are used. But the atmosphere is transformed. The truth is that we allow ourselves and permit ourselves to be distracted. And that will never end unless we realize that this is happening and take spiritual steps to correct that. And so I begin with Nehemiah, uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. Now the thing that I find fascinating as we read this is that uh, even though thousands of years have passed, uh, you could almost say this is the same then as it is now. You have Jerusalem surrounded by hostile enemies. And that was true then and it's true now. It came to pass when Sanballat, now Nehemiah has gone back to the city of Jerusalem and he has engaged himself in the repair of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had uh, built the wall, that there was no breach left in the wall, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. So the walls had been repaired, but the, the, the doors had not been set on their hinges, if you like. 
It says that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together. These, remember, are his enemies. And they said, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great... These are the famous, uh, the famous words that we've all heard many times. I love it. He said, I sent messengers unto them saying I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you and he refused refused to be distracted he was the effort was to draw him into a trap where he would be injured perhaps killed it says yet they send unto me four times they would not be discouraged. They, they were insistent upon meeting with Nehemiah in order to lure him into a trap, entice him into a trap. And there were many traps that were set for him. He said, they send unto me four times after this sort, the same kind of way. Now, it's not exactly the same thing they said, the four times, but it says after this sort or after this kind. So it was like, well, if this little approach here did not deceive him, Let's try to add this element of deception and try to deceive him in this way. So they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful. I would have had a tendency to ignore them after maybe the first or second time. I would have had a tendency just to ignore them after that. But no. You see, there are certain things that cannot be ignored. They must not be ignored. They must be answered. No matter how many times, they must be answered, not ignored. I've never heard this presented, but this is a powerful spiritual truth. Don't ignore the thing that is trying to discourage you or entrap you or distract you. Don't ignore it. Respond to it. Make sure your response is a Holy Spirit, Word of God-inspired response. And respond to it every time. In the book of Acts in chapter 5. It's a marvelous chapter. Chapter 5 of the book of Acts. It begins with the account of Ananias and Sapphira. It's a dreadful story. It's a dreadful story in many respects. It makes you just quiver. It's an awesome manifestation of the power of God. And how... The consequences of lying to the Holy Ghost are so severe, especially in a time of great revival and outpouring of the Spirit of God. There are certain things that will not be tolerated. The very thing that we pray for most earnestly, this is why it's so important to be, we be ready for revival and outpouring of the Spirit of God as it comes. We must be ready for it because if we're not ready for it, we could be injured by it. We could be injured by it. And this is why the Lord said to me many years ago, I'm able to do these, I'll just paraphrase, I'm able to do these things that you so desire, but are you able to deal with the consequences? It tells us after Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 that signs and wonders were performed by the hands of the apostles. It tells us that the multitudes were added to the church as believers on a daily basis. Multitudes were added on a daily basis. It was a wonderful outpouring of the 
Word of God, Spirit of God. They were living in great spiritual awakening and reality. So much so that they brought their sick out into the streets. Peradventure, the shadow of Peter walking by might pass upon them and they would be healed. What a marvelous time. The authorities laid their hands upon the apostles and they put them into a prison. And the angel of the Lord came and miraculously, manifesting the power of God over everything, brought them out of the prison, out into freedom, without any idea and knowledge of those who guarded them. So that when they went the next morning to bring them before the authorities, they were not there. And they went inside and unlocked the door and brought them out, and they weren't there. This is, uh, this is the original power of the early New Testament church. This is the awesome manifestation of the power of God. And I would say this is the kind of uh, realm in which the church is intended to live and serve. It is. He goes on to tell us that daily in the temple they were unmolested as they preached and taught the word of God and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Daily in the temple and in every house they taught and they preached this message. Then as we come to the next few verses, in our Bibles is chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 1. And there's an issue that comes. There's, an, there's always an issue. There's always an issue. There's always a sand ballot and a Tobiah, and there's always something like that that comes along, tending to discourage, to dissuade, to disrupt, to distract. Always something. Why do revivals in the past, as we study revivals, why do they come and there's such a marvelous manifestation of the presence of the Lord, but it lasts for a period of time and then it seems to wane? Why does it wane? Why does it dwindle? Why does it not continue to grow? And why does it not continue to spread? Because there are things that come along that are enemies of revival, enemies of this wonderful work of God and manifestation in the earth, which is really the purpose of the Great Commission and of the church. And when that is completed, you and I both know and all know what will occur. When this has been completed, we know what will occur. And that will be the second advent of Messiah Jesus. But there was something that began to happen now in chapter 6. And it says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, see, there was great success. But with great success, there also comes challenges. And in the daily administration of food, it says there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. Some kind of enmity was starting to come in. And there arose murmurings or dissatisfaction and complaint of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Just as a bit of an aside, I can tell you that in the absence of my reading glasses, and one day when I realized that I maybe needed some reading glasses, I read this passage one day and I was kind of confused by what I read. It says, because their windows were neglected. <laughs> and then I said, well, well, it's, it's windows. So that's what happens when we kind of live in a level of obscurity. But I don't need those reading glasses this morning. 
because I have learned how to increase the size of the font, <laughs> right? Increase the size of the font. And so the Grecians were murmuring against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Oh, now this is inconsistent with the spirit of love and brotherhood, right? Sisterhood. And the presence of the Spirit of God to have enmity and disagreement. And, you know, and everybody sees things in their own way. And there's an injustice going on here. And, and this injustice shouldn't be, shouldn't be happening. You know, everybody has good reasons for everything we do. We think we do. And we follow sometimes all of our good reasoning. And we end up in a place where there's something that's inconsistent, really, with the Spirit of revival, the Spirit of God. And there was the beginning of a discord. This is what happened. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reasonable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. This is what we're not going to do. We're not going to leave what we are, are, are calling. We're not going to come down off the wall. We're not going to leave our calling and go here and serve the tables to make sure that the daily administration of food and needs are met. We're not going to do that. You see, that would be a distraction. That would take us away from what we're called to do. They said, therefore, brethren, look to yourselves, out among, from among yourselves, and select seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. It's something that needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed by spirit-filled men or spirit-filled individuals. He says, but we will... Give ourselves continually, here it is, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word and to the question, why does revival tarry? Why does it not come? Why does it seem to wait? Why does it tarry? The answer to the question is because those who are called do not continue to give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And it says, it doesn't say give themselves to the ministry to the ministry of the word and to prayer. It says give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And there is a uh, divine order here. And it is that the giving themselves continually to prayer is the key to the ministry of the word. And anything that would take them away or distract them from giving themselves continually to prayer would be the adversary. And that would be the same as Nehemiah coming down from the wall in Jerusalem to go to some plains of Ono where he might be deceived and perhaps killed. This is the reason why revival tarries. And so if we would see revival then come, now, come, not just talk about it, but experience it, be immersed in it, then there must be a return to those who are called. And I don't believe this is just to those who are involved in pulpit ministry. But it does mean those who are involved in pulpit ministry and spiritual teaching and preaching must give themselves to prayer first, continually, and then to the ministry of the Word. Let me read something to you. And I want to, I want to see and ask you if... If you have any sense about the person uh, about whom these words um, address, or who are these words addressed to? Who is being considered here? 
Let me read these words to you. It says, Great industrial concerns have in their employ men who are needed only when there is a breakdown somewhere. When something goes wrong with the machinery, these men spring into action to locate and remove the trouble and get the machinery rolling again. In other words, when there's a problem, there are people involved in these great industrial concerns who are problem solvers. They're there to provide solutions when there are problems. So they spring into action, locate and remove the trouble, and they get the machinery rolling again. For the for these men, a smoothly operating system has no interest. They are specialists concerned with trouble and how to find it and how to correct it. Such a man was likely to be drastic, radical, possibly at times violent. And the curious crowd that gathered to watch him work soon branded him as extreme, fanatical, negative, and in a sense, they were right. He was a single-minded, severe, fearless, and these were the qualities the circumstances demanded. He shocked some, frightened others, and alienated not a few. Any idea? Any thought about the person these words are about? Anything come to mind? Such a man as this is not an easy companion. His acquaintances are divided neatly into two classes. Those who love and admire him out of all proportion. In other words, he has enthusiastic supporters that overlook everything. They just support him no matter what. And then the other side is those who hate him with a complete hatred. And nothing he can do is right and they'll find fault with what he does no matter what it is. And so it divides us. People who follow him are divided into these two classes, those who love and admire him out of all proportion, those who hate him with a complete hatred. You don't have to say it out loud, but anybody come to mind in this current events that we're, this world we're living in right now? Anything come to mind? Now let me say this to you. Let me read now and continue on. I'll read the last part and then I'll continue it on. Such a man as this is not an easy companion. His acquaintances, his acquaintances are divided into two classes. Those who love and admire him out of all proportion. Those who hate him with a complete hatred. And what is true of the man is sure to be true of his books. Of this book. The reader will either close its pages to seek a place of prayer or he will toss it away in anger, his heart closed to its warnings and appeals. Not all books, not even all good books come as a voice from above, but I feel that this one does. It does because its author does and the spirit of the author breathes through his book. This is not written about any political person. This is written about something else, someone else. This book is written, this, these words that I read to you, all of these words are written in the foreword to a book written by Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill. And Leonard Ravenhill became a 
one of the foremost uh, preachers and ministers and writers on revival. He was born in 1907 in Yorkshire, United Kingdom. Died in 1994 in Garden Valley, Texas, in the United States of America, Leonard Ravenhill. And the book that he's written is called Why Revival Tarries. That's the name of the book. Why Revival Tarries. And I'm going to read you the first chapter of that book this morning. And you'll be interested to know that the man who wrote the foreword to the book, the words that I just read to you, these words were written by A.W. Tozer, personal friend of Leonard Ravenhill. And Leonard Ravenhill referred to A.W. Tozer as his personal spiritual advisor. Isn't that wonderful? Now, Tozer, I don't know of anyone who is a better writer than A.W. Tozer. There's no question that whatever um, quality his public uh, pulpit ministry had, I, I know this, that his writing has just been wonderful, marvelous. No one could read the writings of A.W. Tozer and be unmoved by them. It's a perfect combination of depth and ability. Just his writing ability is astonishingly great. And yet the depth with which he wrote was almost unparalleled. And so how many forwards did A.W. Tozer write? He wrote a lot of books, but how many forwards did he write? Not too many. And how many people would even think to ask A.W. Tozer to write a foreword to their book? Not too many. And how many people would A.W. Tozer go to and say, I would like to write a foreword to your book? Because I don't think anybody really would come and ask him to write a foreword for their book. But once in a while, he would be inclined because of the content and the great value he placed on a ministry and on words that some message that someone had to even say, I would like to write a foreword to your book. And the book is Revival of Wyatt Terry's. And chapter one is With All Thy Getting, Get Unction. And in this chapter, Leonard Ravenhill, Ravenhill talks about unction. You know what unction is? Unction? Unction? U-N-C-T-I-O-N, unction. Well, let's read this chapter and find out what unction is. Now, let me say that the uh, heading, with all thy getting, get unction, is basically um, borrowing from Proverbs 4 and 7. And Proverbs 4 and 7 is, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. So with all thy getting of wisdom, get understanding. So then that's kind of used as with all thy getting, get unction. The Cinderella of the church of today is the prayer meeting. The handmaid of the Lord is unloved and unwooed because she is not dripping with the pearls of intellectualism nor glamorous with the silks of philosophy. Neither is she enchanting with the tiara of psychology. She wears the homespuns of sincerity and humility. And so is not afraid to kneel. She's not afraid to kneel. This is the words of Leonard Ravenhill. The offense of prayer is that it does not essentially tie into mental efficiency. Prayer is conditioned by one thing alone, and that is spirituality. One does not need to be spiritual to preach. 
that is to make and deliver sermons of homiletical perfection and exegetical exactitude by a combination of memory, knowledge, ambition, personality, plus well-lined bookshelves, self-confidence, and a sense of having arrived. Brother, the pulpit is yours almost anywhere these days. Preaching of the type mentioned affects men. Prayer affects God. Preaching affects time. Prayer affects eternity. The pulpit can be a shop window to display our talents. The closet speaks death to display. The tragedy of this late hour is that we have too many dead men in the pulpits giving out too many dead sermons to too many dead people. Oh, the horror of it. There's a strange thing that I have seen under the sun, even in the fundamentalist circles. It is preaching without unction. Can you see why Tozer would want to write a foreword? Well, if not, let me read on. What is unction? What is unction? He says, I hardly know. I hardly know. But I know what it is not. Or at least I know when it is not upon my own soul. Preaching without unction kills instead of giving life. The unctionless uh, preacher is a savior of death unto death. The word does not live under the, uh, unless the unction is upon the preacher. Brethren, we could well manage to be half as intellectual if we were twice as spiritual. Preaching is a spiritual business. A sermon born in the head reaches the head, whereas a sermon born in the heart reaches the heart. Under God, a spiritual preacher will produce spiritually minded people. Unction is not a gentle dove beating her wings against the bars outside of the preacher's soul. Rather, she must be pursued in one. Unction cannot be learned, only earned by prayer. Now, Leonard Ravenhill wrote this, especially to preachers, men who speak from the pulpits. But I know that this does not apply just to preachers or men who are in official positions of pulpit ministry. These words apply to everyone, every believer. These words apply to me and you. They apply to us equally, to each one of us. We should never think then that we would just be where we ought to be if our preacher or the preacher that we uh, sit under certain messages if those individuals were just as close to God as they ought to be, that we would automatically be there too. No. That would be a great benefit to us. That would be a great benefit to us. But that does not take away our own personal responsibility in these matters. Did you ever think that, you know, do, do people who inhabit pews, do they sometimes realize what impact their lives have upon the man who walks into the pulpit? See, it works both ways. Unction is God's knighthood for the soldier preacher who has wrestled in prayer and gained the victory. Victory is not won in the pulpit by firing intellectual bullets or wisecracks, but in the prayer closet. It is won or lost before the preacher's foot enters the pulpit. 
Unction is like dynamite. Unction comes not by the medium of the bishop's hands. Neither does it mildew when the preacher is cast into prison. In other words, someone can be ordained and hands can be laid upon them in ordination for ministry. But unction does not come that way. Unction will pierce and percolate. It will sweeten and soften. When the hammer of logic and the fire of human zeal fail to open the stony heart, unction will succeed. What a fever of church building there is just now. Yet without unctionized preachers, these altars will never see anxious penitence. In other words, he's saying, you know, we see churches being built all over. There's such a zeal to build churches, build new buildings, build these churches. But if those who minister from the pulpit of those new churches do not have unction, then we'll never see anxious penitence at the altar. Suppose that we saw fishing boats with the latest in radar equipment and fishing gear launched month after month and put out to sea only to return without a catch. What excuse would we take for this barrenness? Yet thousands of churches see empty altars week after week and year after year and cover this sterile situation by misapplying the scripture, my word shall not return unto me void. The ugly fact is that Altar fires are either out or burning very low. The prayer meeting is dead or dying. By our attitude to prayer, we tell God that what was begun in the spirit, we can finish in the flesh. What church ever asked its candidating ministers what time they spend in prayer? Yet ministers who do not spend two hours a day in prayer are not worth a dime a dozen. Ministers who do not spend, he writes, at least two hours a day in prayer are not worth a dime a dozen. Degrees or no degrees. You still wonder why E.W. Tozer wanted to write the foreword? No. Because Tozer, spirit, knew these words were not just authored by Leonard Ravenhill. The church today is standing on the sidewalk watching with fever and frustration while the sin-dominated evil geniuses of Moscow strut the middle of the road breathing out threatenings against whatsoever things are lovely and of good report. Now in the time that this book was written and the great threat of the Soviet Union and the dominance of the papal system were two of the primary concerns of Leonard Ravenhill, but we could add others to that list today. Among those, the rise of Islam in the earth. Then he continues behind, follows the purple pageantry of papal Rome. Moreover, the devil has substituted reincarnation for regeneration. Familiar spirits for the Holy Spirit. This is just... just this just can't emphasize this enough. He says the devil has substituted certain things. And one of the things the devil has substituted is familiar spirits for the Holy Spirit. Take that to heart. Think deeply and prayerfully about that, what that means. And he has substituted Christian science for divine healing. 
He has substituted the Antichrist for the true Christ. And he has substituted the Church of Rome for the true Church. Against these twin evils of communism and Romanism, what has the Church to offer? Where is the supernatural? Both in the pulpit and in the press, somnolence seems to have taken over religious controversy of late. Even Rome does not call us Protestants anymore. We have just the juiceless name of non-Catholics. Significant, isn't it? Hell has no fury like that of this mother of harlots when she is stirred. But who now earnestly contends for the faith once delivered to the saints? Where are our unctionized pulpit crusaders? Preachers who should be fishing for men are now too often fishing for compliments from men. Preachers used to sow seed. Now they string intellectual pearls. Imagine a field sown with pearls. Away with this palsied, powerless preaching, which is unmoving because it was born in a tomb instead of a womb and nourished in a fireless, prayerless soul. I might just add before I... I'm just about at the end of this. A number of months ago, Kind of accidentally, I came upon a certain individual. And that individual had written certain books. This individual was very much involved, actively involved. In the beginnings in 1952 of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International, one of the founding members. I had not heard of this man before, personally. And so I began to familiarize myself with his life and ministry. Just a... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he passed away in his 90s. One of the things he wrote in one of the books that I recently read of his, he said he, when he was living in Minnesota, living in Minnesota, he and his wife, and he said early in the morning, sometimes early, very early in the morning before anyone had awakened, there'd be a knock at his door. And he said he'd go to the door, and there stood Leonard Ravenhill. And Leonard Ravenhill would come in and say, Brother Sonmore, let's pray. Let's pray. And he said, I had come to know that what that meant is that we would spend the entire day in prayer. The entire day in prayer. This is Leonard Ravenhill. Let me close this chapter. He writes, we may preach and perish. Just think of that. Those who preach, it's possible that they could perish. It's possible that they could preach, but their hearts would not be right with the Lord. But he writes, We cannot pray and perish. We can preach and perish, but we cannot pray and perish. If God called us to the ministry, then, dear brethren, I contend that we should get unctionized. And I want to just add this morning as we close, even though the emphasis here by Brother Ravenhill is on the ministers, and I understand and it's perfectly well placed to be there. 
but it should be something that is addressed to all of us. It is addressed to each of us. He says, I contend that we should all get unctionized. With all thy getting, get unction. Lest barren altars be the badge of our unctionless intellectualism. Why Revival Terries by Leonard Ravenhill. I invite you to buy a copy. Buy a copy. Spend the money and buy it. Get your own copy by purchasing it and read it and read it. And may the Lord bless you. Amen.